Well, if you're a guest here, we want to, again, extend our welcome to you. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And we, as a church family, have been looking into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we're doing this in what is called an expository sermon series. Expository is kind of just a fancy word that means that the main meaning of a biblical passage is the same meaning of the, pa- of the, of the sermon. And so we're working ourselves through the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, Jesus' sermon that's found in Matthew's chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Those three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew are called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus there on the Mount, teaching and preaching uh, to those that were with him. <clears throat> we are, find ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter 5, and the passage that was read for us this morning, in verses 17 down through verse 26. Now, the challenge of preaching a sermon from a sermon, right, is that we're looking at it piece by piece. And so there's benefit and help in doing that. But I just want to make sure that we remember that this was a sermon that was preached, you know, from start to finish in its entirety. It wasn't just done little by little, week after week. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't already, and maybe do this from time to time as we're going through this series together, is read through the entire Sermon on the Mount in one sitting. And I'd encourage you to Try doing it. Read it out loud. Don't do that in like a public place, probably. People might think you're weird if you're reading out loud to yourself on like the RTD bus or something. Uh, But I would encourage you to get your Bible, find someone, maybe somebody joining the church family, uh, someone in your family, and read it out loud and hear the Sermon on the Mount as you read it. And uh, this sermon recorded um, by Matthew of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, if you remember, Jesus is setting forth the nature and the quality of his kingdom and kingdom citizens. And the kingdom that Jesus is referring to here in the sermon is the kingdom of heaven. We know that because it's recorded that leading up to the sermon that Jesus was teaching and he was preaching. In Matthew chapter 4, it says that Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the kingdom he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, again, just leading up to this sermon, he's going through Galilee, he's teaching in their synagogues, and what is he doing? He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So here in Matthew 5, Jesus begins to teach about the nature and the qualities and the features of the citizens of that kingdom of heaven and the kingdom itself. And so in this passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus is going to clarify the relationship of the law to kingdom citizens. He's going to be clarifying the relationship of the law of God to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning we're going to learn what Jesus thought about the Old Testament. We're going to learn about the futility of trying to use law to achieve righteousness. And we're also going to rejoice to know that Jesus came to fulfill the law. And so for the purposes of the sermon this morning, we're going to do things a little bit out of order. Okay, So I want you to not be frustrated if you're a note taker. We're going to begin with verses 18 and 19. I know we start in verse 17. So I just want you to know right up front, we'll get there, okay? But we're going to start by looking at verses 18 and 19. Then we're going to move to verses 20 through 26, which is an example that Jesus is giving to prove his thesis. And then we're going to conclude by looking back at verse 17, which really I think is going to give our hearts joy and hope in Jesus our Savior. So our first point this morning in verses 18 and 19, Jesus affirms the Holy Scripture. Jesus affirms the Holy Scripture. Now to help us grasp What Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, we're going to need to understand some of the issues that were present for the Israelite people and the historical setting when Jesus was teaching this. 
in verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So the topic under discussion that Jesus is giving here is the relationship of the law and the prophets with the kingdom and with kingdom citizens. And so when Jesus uses the phrase law or prophets, it's another way of saying the scriptures. And in that day, all right, it was the Old Testament scriptures because when Jesus was teaching that the New Testament had not yet been written. When we talk about the scriptures, we talk about Genesis through Revelation. Well, when Jesus talks about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures because that's what they had. That's what had been written. And so the phrase law or prophets, you might think, well, it's just talking about some specific sections of the Old Testament. It's actually not. That phrase law and prophets is used uh, over a dozen times in the New Testament to describe the entirety of the Old Testament texts. And so, in other words, Jesus is talking about that he has not come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures at all, but he's come to fulfill them. So Jesus here is going on the record to make sure that people know what he believes about the Old Testament scriptures. So you might be thinking, well, why is that even important? Well, throughout the public ministry of Jesus, he is going to be accused or be chased by various scandals from the religious leaders of the day. And ordinarily, religious teachers of the day would have ascribed to a particular religious order or sect, like a Pharisee or the Sadducee or the scribes. But Jesus didn't identify with any of them. He was a, clearly a rabbi, he's teaching, but he didn't ascribe to one of those groups. And for the average Israelite of the day who was trying to make a living, trying to raise a family, the law was a problem for them. At least the law as it was taught by the Pharisees. And that's an important distinction that we need to make. That when Jesus spoke about the law and the prophets, and he talked about the Old Testament scriptures, he was talking about the actual words of God But with the scribes and Pharisees, they made their living on discussing and then burdening the Israelites with particular requirements of what they call, what the Pharisees and scribes called, law-keeping. And that was really an adherence to what became human tradition. So the scribes put a lot of mental effort into thinking of every possible way and potential situation a person might face of how they could then keep the law of God. And they busied themselves with this. And they wrote thousands. I'm not exaggerating. Okay, I'm going to prove it here in just a minute. They wrote thousands of laws that, they then, that were then taught to the people and that were then lived out by the Pharisees as a requirement for obeying God. So when the average Israelite would hear a Pharisee or a scribe, well, the scribes didn't do a lot of talking. They would do more of the writing. The Pharisees did the teaching. They heard them talk about the law of the prophets. The Pharisees were thinking about all these scribal laws. When Jesus is talking about the Law of the Prophets, he's talking about the actual Old Testament authoritative text of God's Word. So the problem then is that these man-made laws supplanted and replaced the actual words of God in that day. And so then, in studying this passage, I came across an example of this, all right? And I'm going to just uh, share with you that example because I remember when I was studying it just thinking how um, overwhelming and exasperating this would be. So you ready for this? The Old Testament law says... Don't work on the Sabbath, okay? So then, the Old Testament law has a requirement. So here's what the scribes did. The scribes busied themselves to determine, well, what constitutes work? How much carrying can you do before it's a burden? So they said, okay, work means you can't carry your burden. Well, then how much carrying can, you know, is a burden? And so I'm going to quote now from one of the scribal passages. A burden is food equal to the weight of a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, 
milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make the pen. Now, if you're note takers, you get all that. So just imagine trying to live under this expectation. I mean, for instance, how much jewelry then could a woman wear before it became work? Or could a person walk around with a prosthetic leg? Or could a parent pick up a child? I mean, we kind of snicker and laugh at this, but yet um, the scribes are the ones who debated and studied and wrote out all these so-called laws, and the Pharisees are the ones who taught them and tried to live these laws out, and they would pat themselves on the back for their good law-keeping. But Jesus didn't seem to trouble himself too much with all of those scribe, all of that scribal effort and Pharisaic expectation. And this exasperated these religious leaders. It angered these religious leaders. And so, in fact, Jesus and his disciples were accused from time to time of law-breaking because they didn't seem to abide by these restrictions. In fact, one of those examples, well, two of them, are found in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus and his disciples were walking by a grain field and they were plucking grain off the heads of uh, of the of the stalks and the Pharisees saw it and they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They're working. Why? They're harvesting grain. Or again, another occasion in Matthew 12 where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And that was scandalous because the scribal laws detailed limitations on what kind of healing effort you could do. They said, well, you could heal if, if there was a danger to life, you could definitely intervene, but there's limitations on that. Even then, you could only take steps to keep a patient from getting worse. You couldn't help them get better on the Sabbath. Aren't you glad that's not the case at hospitals today? Um, right? So you could put on a plain bandage, but you couldn't put on a bandage with ointment. You could put plain wadding in a sore ear, but you could not put medicated wadding in, on a sore ear. And so you say, why does any of this matter in regards to this passage and why we're looking at this today? Well, some in that day might have thought that Jesus didn't think highly about the Old Testament scriptures because they were hearing what the scribes wrote, what the Pharisees taught, as analogous, is the same as the scriptures. And yet Jesus didn't seem to abide by some of that. He just didn't seem to trouble himself with this expectation of don't heal. He healed the man with a withered hand. People were in shock. They were angered. And so Jesus at times might have been perceived as somebody who disregarded the scriptures, but that was not the fact at all. Jesus has a very high view of scriptures. It was actually the Pharisees that had a low view of scriptures. Jesus has a very high view of scriptures. And so in Matthew 5, verses 18 and 19, Jesus explains that the scriptures are preeminently important. They are essential. They should be held in the highest regard. Not even the smallest feature. That's why in this verse it talks about the, the uh, iota or a dot, the smallest little scribal uh, squiggles on the paper, right? The scribes are the ones that wrote all this out. The smallest part of the actual law of God cannot be overlooked or relaxed. God's word is preeminent and it is permanent. What Jesus is saying here in this passage when he says heaven and earth are going to, this is going to last until heaven and earth pass away. It's going to be, re, it's going to remain. It is permanent and fixed. It echoes what Isaiah the prophet wrote when he said, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so Jesus clarifies that the scripture stands firm and is resolute in its truthfulness. The scriptures are not to be pushed aside, as some might have accused him of. Neither are the scriptures to be, and here's the key, relaxed. And that's exactly what has been done. They're not, they're not meant to be relaxed 
They are meant to be fulfilled. And so in verse 19, he warns us, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But the issue there is, are you understanding the actual law of God and are you doing it or are you relaxing it? And then verse 20, this might really have been a puzzler. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So to treat the scriptures lightly or to relax its statements or to teach others to do the same, you will be held in low esteem in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a truth that's worthy of more consideration. That, that phrase might actually cause you to have some questions. What does that mean? But we, we, for the sake of the sermon this morning, we don't have time to unpack all of the implications of that passage. But we should know this, that the, kingdom of, the word of God is essential in the kingdom of heaven. We can't push it aside or relax it or rephrase it to make it fit us. We must conform ourselves to it. And so, the king of the kingdom of heaven holds in high regard those who obey his word. So, a simple question is, do you? So, here then we're presented with the issue of upholding the law or relaxing the law. Others might have thought Jesus was the one relaxing the law. Right? I mean, he's picking grain on the Sabbath. He's healing people on the Sabbath. How dare he? He doesn't believe highly in the scriptures. Oh, he does. Jesus is going to reveal that it's the scribes and the Pharisees who relax and disregard the scriptures. And then he gives an example to prove that thesis. And that's what we find in verses 20 through 26. So the second part of our sermon this morning is the kingdom of heaven requires a different kind of righteousness. The kingdom of heaven requires a different kind of righteousness. In verses 20 down through verse 26, or I should say verse 21, I... Verse 21 is an example of the righteousness succeeding the scribes and Pharisees, that a different kind of righteousness is needed. Jesus illustrates with the law against old, the Old Testament law against murder. Now, right, this law was, quote-unquote, easy to obey, right? I mean, all you got to do is just not kill somebody. And, you know, the Pharisees thought, we got this one made. And we just, as long as we don't kill somebody, we're good. And they thought that they had that one covered, but... They were wrong. They had actually relaxed this. Jesus begins to peel away the layers of hypocrisy that have relaxed what the Scriptures actually taught. So over and over again through the Gospels, Jesus decries the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the day. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount alone, three times he denounces their hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, and again in verse 5, and then in chapter 7, verse 5, Three of those instances there, just in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is uh, decrying their hypocrisy. Thirteen times in Matthew alone, it's recorded that Jesus speaks out against their hypocrisy. Now, this is the place where Christians and church can start to feel smug. You know, like, boy, those Pharisees, those were some real rascals. But before we start to feel smug about ourselves, we would do well to let the Spirit of God examine our own lives for that same deadly threat of hypocrisy. It's a common notion for us to think that we're going to be right with God by doing right. Or, or it's easy to think that if we live a righteous life, then we can live with a righteous God. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to understand that Christianity is radically different from that idea. Really, it's what sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions. I mean, all the other world religions are offering various ways of accomplishment or works that when achieved 
offer the promise of some sort of eternal life. The other world religions function on a system of you do this and you're going to get that. But Christianity is distinctly different. Christians, Christianity's central message is not what will you do, but it is instead embrace what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Are you a Christian? And here in Matthew 5, we learn that the Pharisees believe that keeping the letter of the law is all that matter because then we can have a righteous life and we're going to attain a favor from a righteous God. But in verse 20, Jesus teaches that there's more to it. In verse 20, it would have been just crushing to the hearers in that day, right? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that was just like, well, nobody's getting there then. I mean, it was impossible to outdo these dudes in their law-keeping. They were fastidious about all these little details. And Jesus here is not saying you need to do more. He is teaching them that there is a different kind of righteousness for those who are in the kingdom of heaven. Not a kind of your own making, but a kind of God's making. There's no way a person could outdo the Pharisees. And so Jesus is showing them this different kind of righteousness. And so in verses 21 through 26, he explains that merely staying away from the act of murder is not enough. Your law-keeping is not going to get you into heaven. The righteousness that Jesus is talking about is not primarily an external righteousness attained through careful living. The righteousness of the kingdom of, of heaven is an internal righteousness found in the heart of the one who believes Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's why Jesus says that the principle within the law against murder actually reaches into what causes murder, which is anger. And now we all start to squirm, don't we? Because in the eyes of God, verbal abuse, name-calling, this is what he gives the examples of, right? When he talks about, in verse 22, um, anybody who is angry with his brother, what does that anger look like? Insults, if you look down in verse uh, 22 again, talk, calling them, you fool. I mean, these are different ways of anger expressing itself. And so in the eyes of God, a verbally abusive person is equally as sinful as a murderer. Now that seems to be kind of, what, over the top? I mean, God, come on. I mean, really? Now, for sure, we need to understand that there is a difference practically in temporal consequence between words and attitudes of anger and killing somebody, right? I don't believe police officers are arresting somebody for, you spoke angrily there. There's a difference between that and you killed this person, right? We, we understand that. But as we look below laws of man into actually what is, what is in the law of God in that command, Jesus is showing that the Pharisees were living in this self, the this, this sepulcher of self-made righteousness, thinking that they were okay because they hadn't murdered somebody, when all along in their hearts they're seething at other people. And it's the heart of sin, of anger, that springs up and leads to murder. And so in the eyes of God, both are equally sinful. So there's some truths here about anger that we have to take to heart. Right? We could just glaze over and say, anybody murder? You need to repent and turn yourself in. But Jesus is saying, listen, the heart that lies behind murder is anger. And that is sin. Now, I want to make sure we understand that there is a place for righteous anger. This doesn't mean that we have no anger. Because no anger would mean that there is no love. So there are some things that ought to that we ought to respond to with anger, with a, can we say, righteous anger? But let's be honest. 
the percentage of that actually happening is pretty slim, if we're honest with ourselves. Most of our anger, and I say by most, it's ordinarily like 99.9% of it, right, is all about pride or, or personal preference or it's all kind of wound up in ourselves. So Jesus isn't referring to righteous anger. He's referring to sinful anger. And Jesus is saying that sinful anger is no small matter in the eyes of God. So are we guilty of congratulating ourselves about our so-called obedience to God all the while we sinfully seethe inside at somebody? We might think we're okay because, after all, look at what we're doing for God. But Jesus doesn't even give them that answer because the Pharisees liked to call themselves holy because of all that they were doing, right? I mean, they were giving alms publicly. They were doing all these big acts of worship and sacrifice. And Jesus says, here, no, no, no. Listen, if, you, if there's a problem, if there's anger, if you're at the altar... And by the way, I don't want us to get distracted here, but have you ever wondered what it was like at the temple giving sacrifices? I don't want to sound kind of cliche or cavalier here, but I wonder if the temple was in some ways, uh, this is kind of risky, was in some ways kind of like the Israelites going to the DMV. Now, it's obviously not the DMV, but you understand you've got priests overseeing all these sacrifices. I'm assuming that there's lines because you've got people queued up waiting for the priest to take care of, to do their sacrifice. So this was not, what I'm trying to point out is it's not a small inconvenience. It would be like you being at line in the DMV, right? You've got like, whatever, number 13. No, sorry, you've got like number 300 and they're on number 13. That's how it is. <laughs> All right, and then you realize, oh man, there's this problem, there's this issue of anger and you drop your number and you go make that right and come back and what? Pick another number. And so what Jesus is showing here is there's this issue of inconvenience that must be absorbed for the sake of what? Getting rid of this sin of anger. That's how important it is in the eyes of God. And I hope we all shudder at the thought of murder, but do we shudder the same at our sinful anger? I mean, how often have we excused our anger because of some external circumstance? I'm not feeling well, I'm hungry, hangry, right? Or whatever else, and we just kind of we, we have all these elaborate ways to excuse what Jesus here is showing and elevating up to, the, to those that are hearing him. Listen, this is a big problem. You think you've got it made because you're not murdering? No, no, no. I'm telling you that the issue that we need to understand here is that God is looking at a righteousness in the heart. That's what marks kingdom citizens, and that affects even our responses and our anger. God sees our heart. And our hearts matter. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 15, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What would that look like? That would look like coming to a Sunday and pretending to worship all the while your heart is boiling over with seething anger at somebody. We cannot act our way through worship. Worship must flow from the heart and God sees the heart. So contrary to what the scribes were writing, what the Pharisees were teaching, the law of God isn't satisfied only with external actions. It reaches into the heart, in the halls of our heart. How about us? Do we nurse anger against others? Maybe even in this church family? That cannot be. In verse 25, Jesus tells us that we must pursue peace. We must hasten, come to terms quickly with your accuser. He's talking about an urgency there. God has called us to something more glorious than just going through the motions. He has called his citizens with an internal righteousness of the heart. So one application then is, do we, in what ways, might we need to repent of anger? In this example, 
right? There, there's, there's two individuals that are, that are going to one, one individual is going to another to make this right. Does that need to happen in this church family? Between husband and wife, between children and parents, between brother and sister in Christ. So what are we going to do with all this? Well, you might be feeling a little irritated coming to church on a Sunday morning and being told that your anger is sinful. It hasn't made you feel very good about yourself. Well, maybe you feel hopeless. Like, well, how in the world am I going to fulfill the law more than the scribes and Pharisees? Well, there's good news. And this leads us to the final part of this passage, which is the, actually the beginning, verse 17, right? So if you're a note-taker, here's point three. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Where are we going to go with this burden, right, of law? Where are we going to find relief from this being exasperated with this, the, the law of God reaching into the halls of our heart and expecting us not just to not murder, but not to have anger that would lead to that? How are we going to be relieved from that? Well, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, if you're not a Christian, you need to listen very carefully because this, friend, is what is going to lead you to the glory and the joy that is offered to all who actually know God through Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, listen carefully because this is going to fuel your heart with hope and confidence in all that God has said he is for you in Jesus Christ. Right? Our heads, our minds, our hearts are leaky, right? We come in on a Sunday and we hear God's word and it what? It leaks out all week long. And we come back on another Sunday and we need to hear this. So really, I, I, I trust that you'll let God just kind of pour this back into your heart as a Christian so that you can follow him this week. Instead of doing away or relaxing the demands of Scripture, which is what, right, what the Israelites would have hoped could, could be the case, right? Instead of doing that, Jesus explains that he has come to fulfill them. Well, what does that mean? I asked that question a lot as I was studying this. What does it mean to fulfill them? Well, the term fulfill in verse 17 means to complete something, to fill something up. And then in verse 18, you notice there it says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The word accomplished is similar in meaning. It means to become or to exist or to have it take place. And by the way, there's a lot in verse 18 that is encouraging to us to understand Jesus' um, perception and, a, and belief about the Old Testament scriptures. He believed in all of it completely. And, and we at Highlands Baptist Church, we believe in the inerrancy of scripture, the inspiration of scripture, not just that the Bible contains God's word, but it is God's word. We're, why do we land on that type of doctrinal belief? Well, here's one of those examples for you. Jesus is talking about the smallest feature of the word of God, is permanent and fixed and authoritative. And he says that it's not meant to be pushed aside. What he has done is he has not come to, to abolish it, he has come to fulfill it. So then taken together, this idea of fulfilling, this idea of accomplishing, taken together, those terms mean that Jesus has come to fill out every minute detail of the Old Testament scriptures and give it its full and comprehensive meaning. Jesus did this through his act of obedience to all that God commanded with flawless obedience, right? Praise God for that. It was a sinless man who died on that cross, but it includes more than just his active, flawless obedience. Jesus 
as the fulfillment of the Old Testament in, the, in that Jesus, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures are not just telling us what, by, by, let me try that again. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures not only by what he did, but by who he is. By who he is. So, if you're anything like me, as I was studying through this, you know how an idea is just kind of a blurry concept out there? It's just kind of a fog bank. There's not really any clearly defined edges. But as we start to consider, okay, how then is Jesus the actual fulfillment? Not by just in what he does, but in who he is. I want us to consider... One example that I came across between the priest, the high priest of Israel, and Jesus. And if you have any um, background in the Old Testament scriptures, you'll know that Aaron was the first high priest for Israel. So the high priest would oversee and carry out all the ceremonies and rituals of the ancient Israel sacrificial system. So if we were to compare Aaron and Jesus, I'm going to be quoting here from one of the passages that I came across as I was studying. Consider how Jesus fulfills this portion of the Old Testament scriptures and the idea of the Old Testament priesthood, right? Aaron entered the earthly tabernacle. Christ entered the heavenly temple. Aaron entered once a year. Christ entered once for all. Aaron entered beyond the veil. Christ rent the veil. Aaron offered many sacrifices. Christ offered one. Aaron offered his own, for his own sin. Christ offered only for our sin. Aaron offered the blood of bulls. Christ offered his own blood. Aaron was a temporary priest. Christ is the eternal one. Aaron was fallible. Christ is infallible. Aaron was changeable. Christ is unchangeable. Aaron was continual. Christ was final. Aaron's sacrifice was imperfect. Christ was perfect. Aaron's priesthood was insufficient. Christ's was all-sufficient. Aaron's priesthood was not all-prevailing. Christ's sacrifice was all-prevailing. Now, that's just one slice of the Old Testament scriptures where we, you read about, remember, you know, those, those hard passages like Leviticus when you're doing your Bible reading? But all this going on, all of that is not pointing to what the priest is doing. All that is pointing to Jesus who comes to be the fulfillment of all of that. But Jesus does much more than just fulfill the priesthood. How does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament scriptures in its entirety? Well, that would be years' worth of sermons, right? But I came across a summary of that. And I'm going to read it to you. It's a lengthier reading, but there's impos- I don't think you can improve this. So I, I hope this will be a rich encouragement to all the Christians in here about who Jesus is as the one who came, not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, Jesus is the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In 1 and 2 Samuel, Jesus is the trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, Jesus is the reigning, eternal, perfect king. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the broken wall. In Esther, he is the Mordecai. In Job, he is the ever-living Redeemer. In Psalms, he is the Lord, our Shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Jesus is true wisdom. In Song of Solomon, he is the true lover and bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced image. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. 
In Hosea, he is the eternal husband, forever married to the unfaithful spouse. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the Savior. In Jonah, he is the great foreign missionary. In Micah, Jesus is the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is the avenger. In Habakkuk, Jesus is God's evangelist pleading for revival. In Zephaniah, he is the Lord mighty to save. In Haggai, he is the restorer of the lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the fountain opened in the house of David for sin and for cleansing. In Malachi, Jesus is the son of righteousness arising with healing in his wings. So friend, Jesus did not come to abolish the law of the prophets. Jesus came to fulfill them. Jesus is the theme of the Old Testament. Every bit of it is his story. And so here he is in the Sermon on the Mount standing before them. And he's not a lawbreaker. He's the one who came and is the law fulfiller. All of the shadows and the images and the pictures and the details and the stories and the kings and the prophets, all of it from the Old Testament are all pointing to this one Messiah, the righteous one of God, Jesus, God with us. That's who he he is. And so this then means that citizens of God's kingdom have an internal righteousness that is not of their own making, but of Christ's making. And Jesus is qualified to give that righteousness. Because the righteousness described in the Old Testament is is standing in front of them in Jesus. And so then, when Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, the only solution to that problem is Jesus Christ. So what kind of righteousness do you have? Do you have self-righteousness? Some sort of self-made? Or do you have the righteousness of God that comes through faith? Which is why the Apostle Paul writes about it this way in Romans chapter 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, here it is, as righteousness. So then, if you are not a Christian... Have you, would you embrace Jesus to be your ultimate fulfillment? I mean, to be a Christian means that you possess the internal righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus. So would you embrace Jesus by faith? That's the core of what Christianity is. Christianity is not a life of external conformity to a standard. Christianity is an internal transformation, a rebirth by the power of God through his regenerating spirit. So Christianity then is a life that abandons its love affair with sin and embraces Jesus to be its greatest treasure. And I hope that you see a little bit of why Christians sing about Jesus and talk about Jesus and, talk about, and, and want to tell others about Jesus. Why? Because he is the fulfillment. He is God with us. If you're not a Christian, it's our invitation to you to please lean into understanding this more. Talk to the person that invited you. Or if you don't know and nobody invited you, you just happen to show up. Thanks for being courageous and coming. Talk to a church member nearby. It is our joy to talk to you more about Jesus. And I hope that you understand a little bit of reason why, if you are a Christian. Yes, Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but remember that faith is not alone. If Jesus is our righteousness, then we will, right, we're going to live out that righteousness through faith-filled obedience. Not as a way of earning or attaining favor from God, but as a way of showing our worship of God, 
of displaying to the nations, to the world around us, that we are citizens of a kingdom and we serve a great king and this is why we live. So then, Christian, if there are, are there areas of our life where we might be trying to relax God's statements because we're trying to achieve some effort to fulfill it and we just can't? Have we forgotten that Jesus is is all that God has promised for us? Are there areas in our life that we've been trying to relax God's statements that we just need to repent and forsake and find the joy of forgiveness? The forgiveness that God has granted and gives to all who repent and believe. Are there sins of anger that we must repent of? Are there conversations that need to happen in this church family so that we as a church family can fulfill our mission, which is to display God's glory by making disciples of Jesus Christ with the gospel of grace? Well, let's let the gospel of grace affect our relationships with one another. Maybe there's repentance that needs to happen about your relationships at work or relationships in the home. Friends, we we cannot resist the work of the Spirit. Let's let God have his way in our hearts.